0: Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So
1: thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable
0: self. Our guest is Hall of Fame running back Terrell Davis, seven years carrying the ball in the NFL, arguably the best playoff running back in the game's history and a regular on the NFL Network. Terrell, I look over your resume, I look over your history, I look over the work you did in football, and I say to myself, you are one of the most unlikely candidates to be a Hall of Famer that I've ever seen. There were so many obstacles. There were so many hurdles from college to the pros to injuries to – I mean, on and on. When you open your closet and you see that gold Hall of Fame jacket, do you sometimes pinch yourself and say to yourself, how in the world did I get here?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you just said it. It was a um... – It was an improbable, you know, journey, I guess, a route to the National Football League. So, you know, the steps that I took to get there and going through, you know, battling, you know, battling migraine headaches since I was nine years old. I actually not even playing high school football until I was a junior. And then when I played high school football, I didn't play running back. I was playing nose guard and, and, uh, you know, I was blocking fullback. You know, experiencing that with the death of my dad, uh, which kind of took me off of, uh, to it into a different, you know, path, and you know, then walking onto Long Beach State where the program folds after being there for two years, and going to Georgia. So, you know, along the journey, there's there was a lot of different things that I can point to to say that I never saw myself with that jacket, but to me, it was really just kind of using all those things that happened to me, and using the setbacks, the failures, the disappointments. And really not trying to prevent those from happening, but how did I respond to those? And when I look back, I learned a lesson from every single thing that happened to me when I went through these things. And those things made me who I am. And I I had to take that journey. If I had taken the journey of being a five star athlete or somebody who was, you know, highly touted since he was a kid, you know, a number one pick in the draft, I don't know if I'm where I am today. Cause I, I needed all of that to bring the best of me out and so when i look at my journey i don't ever say i wish it was different i'm I'm blessed that i had that because it allowed me to really dig deep and, and explore who i am as a player and as a person so yeah that's unlikely but i think what happens too is people see that and it's motivation for kids to say hey even though i'm not drafted in the first round you know i still can make it and you might have to take a detour a different route to get there But the goal and the destination, you know, can still be the same for anybody. And so hopefully that's the message that it sends to anybody who who sees my story.
1: TD, you were only 12 years old when your dad passed. How would you describe your relationship with your father and how you used that uh, to
0: motivate you for the rest of your life? Yeah, there was some tough love there, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, it was a lot of tough love. And I was 15. I don't know. know, I know, I, I think I told people I was 12, but I was 15 when my dad passed. 15? Okay, yeah, I was fifth. I was a freshman in high school uh, when he passed. You know, it was it was uh man, it was crazy because my dad, as bizarre as some of the stuff um, seems that he did, at that time, it was normal for me. That was my normal, that was my world. My dad was he was really strict in terms of discipline. He had a unique style of trying to get his message across. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked about the time where he pulled the gun out and shot four shots over uh, my brothers and I Ed, Uh, We were not afraid, though. We just, you know, because we trusted my dad. We we knew he loved us and knew he, he wouldn't do anything to harm us. He just had the unique way of of showing us life lessons. And so um, I missed him when he, when he passed away. I felt like my life was was like it was no purpose at that that moment you know and it was kind of weird because I was like wow my dad is gone you know I, I don't see any purpose in living and that's kind of where I went off the deep end and started doing things because you know when he was there we were like all in step but when he left myself my brothers we all kind of got a little wild my mom was working two jobs she couldn't sit there and try to watch all these kids and um uh, You know, it was kind of like when the when the when the cats away, the mice will play situation and I got myself into trouble. But, you know, I love my dad. And I think my whole career, I I finally figured out this. When I was up there on on, on the podium speaking at the Hall of Fame, even that week, I was thinking about my career and I and I was looking back at it. and I was like, wow, what what was really the, the underlying motivation for me? And it finally dawned on me that my whole life, the one person I was trying to to prove and to get the approval of was my dad. Because because I was the youngest boy and my dad would always call me mama's boy. He was really tough on me because I every time something happened, I would cry to my mom and I would go to her for everything. And I felt like, you know, he didn't like that. And At one point, I felt like he didn't like me because I kept doing that. But I realized he did love me. But. My mind was I wanted to to show him that I could I could be tough, and that's why I believe football when I was when I was seven years old became kind of like that that tool that I could use to get to gain my dad's acceptance. You know, playing football was tough and rough, and I can go out there and beat people up, and you know, and that was our our way of connecting. And I feel like when I was doing that, he was, you know, he, he he would praise me and he liked me doing that. And so when he passed, my whole life was I'm still trying to get his approval. And football was that way of trying to do it. And uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully you know, he looked down and and, uh, and he's proud of me, man. So that was really kind of the underlying motivation for me.
1: Well, I'm sure he is proud. And you said it. he used some unique methods to teach lessons to make sure you guys were on the up and up. I'm just curious. You have kids now. Have you adopted any any of your dad's ways, or is that <laughs> something? Now, nah, man, I don't mess with it. Please say no, TD. <laughs>
2: hey, man. Hey, it's uh, you know, my 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 wife was like, you know, we we talked about kind of like our parenting styles, obviously, and I I told her I'm taking I'm taking some pages out of Joe Davis's book. I have to. Um, but what I realize is, I I I was I tried to do that. But it's a different time right It's different time different era and because I responded to it doesn't mean that I should use some of his techniques. So I I initially tried to use those techniques and I, I my wife and I got into it and she really really made me realize that love. I mean, you don't have to go that extreme to show somebody, you know, how to beat discipline or, or something like that. So the, the answer to the question is not really, I have, I have not used a lot of Joe Davis's techniques on my children. I, I, I shower them with love. But I try to talk to them and let them know why things are, or what they are. Um, you know, but, but I do keep some of his techniques in my back pocket just in case I need to break them out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you were nine years old. You got your first migraine and it did follow you throughout your whole career. But I'm wondering, your mom was a registered nurse and, and I'm wondering how she helped you get through those migraines. And also, at any time, did your, did your mom or your dad say, hey, listen, you're a great athlete, track, baseball, football. Why are you picking a sport? where you're using your head as a battering ram. Uh did your mom ever go through that with you and say maybe baseball is is a better route for you?
2: Well, first of all, you assume that my my parents thought I was a good athlete, man. I wasn't a good athlete. <laughs> Come on, you were a star athlete in high school. No, no I was not. That's that's my point. I was not a star athlete. I was I was a, I was pretty good at pop Warner, but that was it. But um no because football, I played baseball when I was little, played basketball. I played all the sports. But I wasn't good at baseball. I couldn't hit the ball. Football for me was like the perfect sport because I, I'm the youngest of, you know, six boys. So from a physical standpoint, I was used to getting my butt kicked. And to be able to play against kids who were were my same age and same size, I was just dominating them, you know, and, I'm you know, played guard my first year. Then I ended up playing running back my second year. And from there, I mean, I was probably the best kid in San Diego County as a running back, um, because I was just physical. You know, at that age, if you just if you can run with physicality, it's those kids can't tackle you, and that's what I was doing. Oh,
0: okay. So, so everybody knew that
2: was your future then. I don't yeah. football. Yeah, I don't know if people knew it was my future, but they knew. Well, it, versus I loved any, it.
0: versus any other sport.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now right. I told you, I don't know if I told you this, but the doctor, because my mom, even though she was a registered nurse. There wasn't a lot known about migraines back then. They, it's, it just wasn't researched enough. So even my mom didn't know exactly what was going on with me. And my doctor didn't even know. So all they knew was when it kept coming on, it would be when I go to practice or if I exerted myself. So the doctor told my mom that they not only recommend, they insisted I don't play football anymore. And when I heard that, I was like, hell no. I, I'm like, I'm willing to take the risk. Of having these things come on, but I am playing football. I love the game that much that I wasn't going to allow this migraines to stop me. Now, I mean, it was hell going through games and practices with a full blown migraine, but I had to take that chance.
1: And, and as the story goes, TD Super Bowl Thirty Two, late in the game, uh, Broncos were going to use you as a decoy. Essentially, um, uh, the Packers were looking for TD to carry the ball they wanted to fake the handoff to you and as the story goes just go in there and pretend you what what was it like I mean when you said you couldn't see like you couldn't see your hand in front of your eyes what was it like at that moment in the biggest game of your life when a migraine is onset and they're asking you to go in there and play decoy
2: well it's um uh, I'm trying to explain what it looks like it's not dark it's not like where you can't see anything it's just it's almost look, you know how if you look at the sun and then you immediately try to focus on something, it takes a while for that vision to clear up that it's like looking into the sun. It's just, it just spots everywhere. You can't see anything like clearly. And so there's like all these shiny spots and images are not complete. So if I'm looking at you, I can see half your face. I it's almost like a piece, like a puzzle piece where the puzzles aren't connected. And that is just, so that's how bizarre it is. And so, yeah, but thank God I've dealt with it since I was nine. So I had some experience with not seeing. And I knew, listen, oh, they, they, if you, as long as you don't give me the ball, I'm cool. Just don't give me the ball. I'm letting you know, Mike, I can't see. And so we ran the fake and John scores. But, um, yeah, I, that was my last play in the first half. We talked about the
0: unlikely road a few times uh, to the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, college was no walk in the park. You went to Long Beach State. Your head coach, George Allen, a Hall of Famer himself, he died uh, after your freshman year. The program folded at Long Beach State. You end up transferring to Georgia. You're a backup at Georgia to Garrison Hurst. Then you tear a hamstring your senior year. And, and here's the oddest thing to me, TD, about your, your college career. For some reason, tell me if I have this story right. Your head coach, Ray Goff, would not let NFL scouts look at your game tape and and that might have hurt you when it came to the draft. You ended up being a sixth rounder instead of something higher. Why wouldn't Goff let the NFL scouts take a look at you?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I heard a lot of things that he did, um, you know, from scouts. Uh, he and I didn't, at the time, we did not have a good relationship. I was not from Georgia. I was a kid from California. I thought there was a bias about how he treated Georgia kids there who were, you know, locals and i kind of i think disrupted his flow you know i'm i'm a kid that I, I i respond differently like i give respect when i get respect you know and his style of coaching was not something that i i liked it was a very you know aggressive style um there was not a collaboration with with the team it was like his way or and or no way and he and I butted heads and they, and he made me play in a few games when I had a severely strained hamstring, which eventually tore because he wouldn't allow me to allow you know to rest it and so we we just had a, we just butted butted heads for the whole time I was there, and so I think that was kind of a you know the spillover was that he was not going to recommend me to any scouts he was not going to talk favorably about me to any scouts and and, uh, you know, that was – that's the way – what he chose to do. And, you know, he, he made a lot of comments about my toughness and stuff. And I was like, you know, it was, it was just – it was crazy. He made me wear high-top cleats. Imagine that. And we had to wear knee braces as running backs. So, in practice, all we did was practice with knee braces, and I'm running around with high-top cleats, flat bottoms. <laughs> I can't – I mean, how am I supposed to, you know – I'm going into games feeling like I'm a lineman. I'm, I feel heavy. I can't explode. That's why my hamstring probably, you know, got all stressed out. And so it was just weird, the things we had to do. And I'm like, I don't understand that. So I kind of – I was bucking, uh, you know, uh, his whole program, and he just didn't like that. But we have – I will say this. We have made – we have made – I talked to Ray Goff, you know, a few years ago, and, and I it was on my heart. I reached out to him, and when we – we squash things, and we have a really good relationship now. But then we did.
0: Yeah, you said nice things about him in your Hall of Fame speech, so I, I was wondering if you reconciled there. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I called him. I reached out to him, yep.
1: It seems like you, you spent the early part of your career just trying to prove to yourself and to others that I can do this. When you, when you got to the NFL, you had that training camp where, heck, you, you, you felt like quitting. I mean, you were going to walk away. <laughs> when, did the t- when did the time come that, man, I, I can do this? I, I got this. I'm TD.
2: You know, I, I've always felt that way. You know, I, I, and I remind myself when I look at my my you know my career. I was again. I go back to Pop Warner. I was best kid in, in San Diego County, so I know I'm I, I'm not. I know I can do it. I go to Long Beach State. I'm sixth on the depth chart. They start me as a as a freshman. I beat out a bunch of juniors and seniors. You know, so I'm starting as a freshman. All right, so I go to Georgia again. I'm fifth or sixth on the depth chart. I work my way up to number two behind Garrison Hurst. I, then I end up starting my junior year. You know. So then I go to Denver. So to me, it's always been I've always had the confidence that I was good. I knew it, and despite the situation, I knew I could do it. But when I go to Denver, I'm not getting any reps whatsoever. I, I'm not getting a chance to prove myself. So you know, we go in there. This is Mike's first year. We got a ton of running backs. Again, I'm I'm, di- I'm deep on the depth chart, and I can't seem to get any any practice, any reps or anything. So when we had that second game in in Tokyo. That week of practice was, was the worst week of, I've ever had. Number one, we were short a bunch of bodies. So we go to Tokyo. It's hot as hell. It's humid. We're down a bunch of running backs. So now I go from getting zero reps in practice to getting all of them. And I am exhausted. And I'm, I'm messing up mentally. I'm not doing things. Bobby T was on my butt the whole time. And it was just a horrible week of practice. And I convinced myself that I was already, you know, they were going to cut me anyway. Because I'm not getting any reps. I'm not on any special team. So I might as well save them the, you know, <laughs> the trouble. I'm just going to quit. And I tried to quit that Friday night before our preseason game. And I couldn't, you know, call down. And it was a little complicated getting a flight out of, you know, Tokyo. Um they didn't have Travelocity or Expedia where you can get on your phone (laughs) for the flight. So, so my, my Japanese wasn't, wasn't real good. And so I I was like, you know what, the communication thing wasn't, wasn't going so well. So I was like, all right, when I get back to Denver, I'm done. I'm I'm going back to Georgia. I'll work for Coca-Cola. I'll do something. But I see this is heading into, you know, this is a dead end street for me and we all know what happened at Saturday, man. in a preseason game, I got a chance to play on special teams and, and I knew, I knew that that was, that was kind of my moment. I had, to, I had to make a play. I had to do something to, to get noticed. And I ran out on kickoff and made, it, made a tackle. And that tackle uh, was the play that got that, – that was it. That was, that was the play that got TD, I guess, noticed by the coaching staff, other players. I Elway was excited about that. And, and that, get, that, get, that got me a, a shot to run, you know, with the ball in that game. And I think I had eight carries about 40 yards, nothing, nothing, you know, great, but it was, it was decent. It was good.
0: Well, Terrell, I'm here to tell you, you were noticed early on. And and I'll I'll give you a little story that you probably haven't heard. Yeah. Here's how I know this. Uh, I'm on the sideline and I'm standing with Adam Schefter when Adam was covering the Broncos at the time. And in the middle of practice, Mike Shanahan comes over to me and Adam and says, who do you like out there? Anybody you see you like? And, both of us said we kind of like that running back from Georgia. He looks pretty <laughs> darn good. And Mike said, "You got a good eye. He could very well end up being our starting running back
2: on opening day." Really? Yep. And this this was before Tokyo. Yes. Okay. That you did shock me. Yeah, because
0: <laughs> I was in Tokyo. I was covering that game, and uh, I knew I knew that that probably solidified your spot on the roster because I knew
2: they liked you before that. Well, they, were, they didn't show it. They didn't give me they – weren't, they weren't showing me they like it. Well, they're football coaches. <laughs> they, they want you to be walking on eggshells. I mean, eggshells, right? like give me some reps, man. Put, the first <laughs> game I didn't even play in the first preseason game. I didn't play at all. Or if I did, I came in one play or something like that. I can't remember, that, but it was very limited. And so I was like, man – and then I, I, mean, I was super frustrated. Bob T – and I guess looking back on that, there is a thing to be said. When a coach is on you – it is not a bad thing. It is a great thing. That means they care. They know you can do better. They have, they're investing their energy and trying to make you better. But a coach doesn't talk to you, you need to worry. You need to worry. It's, they, that ain't, that ain't, you're doing so good that I don't need to be coached. It is, they don't care about you. <laughs> so, so looking back, I was glad that, uh, you know, Bobby was, he was on me, but I didn't take it as, you know, like that when he was doing it.
1: Terrell, you played in the NFL. Every locker room is diverse. We know this. And we've seen some uh some movement in, uh, along the racial lines here in the last 2 months that I've never seen in my lifetime personally. Yep. And uh and I'm wondering you do you do you think this is here to stay or do you think this movement is something we'll look back and say, "Ah, there was a peak and then we went back to what we were doing before?" How, how big of a movement in your eyes is this right now?
2: I think this is gigantic. Um and, and the reason I say it is, yeah, normally when you see something like this, you, you'll see it flare up, and you might see one sector, you know, maybe NFL players are doing it, and then you might see one NBA player, or you might see a little you know, spatter of people, people all over, you know, the country doing it. This opportunity that we have is is the one that I think is going to be a paradigm shift. I think this is it, and it has to be because. It's been here so long. It's been, it's been in our culture for so long that we now are seeing it for the first time because of cameras. And we're able to witness what black people have been saying for many years, what's been happening to us, regardless of whether you're a pro athlete or not. People assume because, oh, you're Terrell Davis, that you, I don't experience this stuff. And I say, you will be surprised. Number one, everybody don't know who I am. So that's so it's not like people recognize me all the time. There's people who don't know who I am, and they treat me like just a black guy. And I've had experiences that I shouldn't experience in these, in this day and age, but I certainly think that what's happening now with not only again with the death of George Floyd is all these other people that we don't even talk about because we don't have the cameras to prove that it's happened to them. But our system has been broken for a very long time. And this is not about this uh, anti-police or law enforcement campaign. It's about accountability for everybody. We hold everybody to a certain standard, but then we allow law enforcement to have passes on everything. And, And we assume that everybody in law enforcement, that they're all good people, that they don't have racist people in law enforcement. And we've been saying for a long time, yes, they do. It's a lot of them who are like that. Now, there's a lot of them who are not, but we've got to root out the ones who are, who are like that and root out the systems that allow them to be able to act in the fashion in which they act and not have any consequences. And so as black people for this country, we always felt for a long time that we don't have the same rights as whites. We don't. It's a fact. If we commit a crime, the same exact crime is punishable normally for a black person three times more than it is for a white person. The same crime. When they enacted the the law where they had crack cocaine versus cocaine, they made it more harsh because they knew black people were using crack more than whites. So for many years, it's this is the system, and it, it really is. It's not just a word, not just a phrase. There is systemic racism that exists in our country. Do we live in a great country? Absolutely. Can we make it better? Absolutely. That's what we're fighting for. It's good versus evil, it's right versus wrong is what black people are fighting for. And the fact that what I'm really encouraged by is that it's not only black people who are fighting for this cause. And it's always been, anytime we've had any push and movement in this country, it's always had to be white people who 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 joined and collaborated with us to push these issues forward. And what I'm seeing now is I see I see white, black, Latino, I see everybody who is saying enough is enough. We can't have two different standards for you know people who who say america is america and it's great and it's you know don't mess it up and it's you know and everything is normal they can't we can't have different rules for them and then the people who are saying wait a minute we we know how to make this country better it's a great country but let's make it better so i believe that this movement is here to stay this movement is here to stay it's not going anywhere and i've seen actions from the nfl i've seen nascar make statements i've seen them taking down these symbols of hate these symbols of uh oppression these symbols that remind us of our history not in a good way and we've been celebrating these these symbols for many years so those things are starting to come down and so i'm i'm really encouraged um it's it, it's encouraged me to to get involved and more people are getting involved now than i've ever seen and i don't think this is just a fad i don't think this is just gonna you know pass over um anytime soon. This is going to be something that we have to take advantage of this moment and make change for this country forever. What do you talk to your three kids
0: about? How do you talk to them about what's going on in the country right now?
2: Well, they're young, so we haven't dropped all this heavy stuff on, the, on them yet, but we did tell them about Juneteenth. We told them, you know, they understand a little bit of the history here, you know, where we came from and how our, our uh, you know, ancestors and our, you know, were slaves and, you know, how that whole thing uh, worked out. But we preach love in our family, man. Our kids have friends of different races and everything. And I think what some people try to do is tell their kids not to see color. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. You see color. You have to see color. See color. But don't judge by color or don't think because they look different that they're any less or they're, you know, inferior to you. So we teach our kids that everybody, God has, God has made everybody to look different and everybody is special and your friends and, and whoever it is. And so that's what we, t- we teach our kids. I haven't told them about the things that I'm going to talk to them really about is, you know, obviously being pulled over and how you have to represent yourself in public to represent you as a black man, because people are going to judge the next black man based on what you do. And I know I'm like that when I go places, I got to make sure that I I'm doing things that represent black men or black people in a fashion that I don't ruin it for the next black person who comes in to a restaurant or is using the, the, the hotel room or whatever. So we have to be accountable to make sure that we are not doing things that that further this. And, and it's sad to say I shouldn't have to do that, but it's sad to say that we have to be mindful of that and and. You know, to make sure that we're not, you know, further perpetuating this stereotype about about black people. Hall
0: of Fame running back Terrell Davis, you have been unstoppable, my man, throughout your career. Give me the one thing that makes
2: you unstoppable. I'd say my mindset makes me unstoppable. Uh, I think that is the strongest part of me as a, as a person. I've, uh, I've had to deal with it a lot, like I said before, but when it comes down to, to, whether it's performance or trying to accomplish something, the, I lean on my mental, my mental fitness. I lean on just my mind. You know, if I want it bad enough, I'm gonna let my mind dictate and push and my actions gonna are going to be in line with my, my mind. And we, you got to have a tough mind, man. Cause this what's guaranteed in this world. I used to say death and taxes, but you can throw in there adversity, setbacks, failure, uh, sadness, all that stuff, death, that's going to be in your life. So, for me, it's just I have, to, I have to mentally prepare for that stuff and know it's going to come. All right. Terrell Davis, thanks, buddy. Hey, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: Time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to a doctor and a nurse practitioner at the Headache Clinic at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. A world class medical destination at the forefront of education, science, medicine, and healthcare, right in the center of the Rocky Mountain region. We are joined by Dr. Marius Perlea. He is an assistant professor of neurology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and by Jeffrey Reynick. He is a nurse practitioner at the CU Anschutz Headache Clinic. Thank you for coming by, gentlemen. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Dr. Burlea, let me start with you. Tell me a little bit about CU Anschutz's headache clinics. What exactly do you do there?
3: We see patients with headache. Uh, It started about six years and a half ago, almost seven years ago, breaking away from what we call general neurology because we identified there was a need to take care of uh, probably 600,000 people with headache and migraine in the state of Colorado. So the hospital supported us to create a subspecialty clinic, which since has grown significantly from, you know, one doctor, myself, to to now eight providers, four doctors, and uh, until recently, uh, the four nurse practitioners.
0: And Jeffrey, as a nurse practitioner at the CU Antiochetic Clinic, what is your role? So I
4: actually do the same thing he does. I see uh, new patients, but I largely do most of the procedures that come through uh, treating mostly migraine. So I see uh, new patients, return patients, and procedures.
0: Got it. Uh, Dr. Burlea, um you are familiar with the Terrell Davis story. He had migraines at the age of nine. He has lived his whole life with migraines, uh, certainly when he was a player uh, in the NFL and a Hall of Fame running back. So explain to everybody I- exactly what a migraine is. What did Terrell Davis and and those who have migraines, what do they suffer from?
3: I don't know details about Mr. Davis's uh, medical history, I know he has migraine, which is a bad headache, but it would be not complete. It would be actually far from complete to say that it's just a bad headache. It's a headache, but many other symptoms coming to it as an expression of a brain disease, which migraine is. So it's a brain disease that uh, comes in attacks that are severe, uh, associated with light and noise sensitivity, nausea, and many times dizziness, intolerance to smells and concentration difficulties, word-finding difficulties, vision changes. Uh, So it's a perfect storm sometimes, which makes me being very impressed with Mr. Davis being able to perform at high level while having such a storm.
0: How many people suffer from this migraines?
3: In the U.S., I would say about 40 million. In the world, probably 1 billion. Jeffrey, when somebody
0: walks into the CU Anschutz Headache Clinic and they believe they have a migraine, what are the first few questions you ask to make sure that's exactly what it is? And is there are, are there instances where people think they have a migraine, but it might be something else?
4: Absolutely. So we have a, a set protocol on how we ask these questions, and it it basically walks you through each type of headache. And each side, we talk about you know when you started having the attacks, what are the symptoms of the attack. Um, and so a person who has uh, a migraine, for instance, typically will have a unilateral pain. Uh, it's usually pulsating and severe. A lot of times they'll rate it between 8 and 10. And they have to have at least three associated features. And, and like Dr. Berlea said, the ma- majority of patients that have uh, migraine will have light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, so much so that they actually vomit. There are patients that come in who have headache that actually mimics migraine Uh, but it's not migraine. For instance, uh, a headache condition that's been taking hold lately is uh, some people have a a CSF leak, which is a fluid around the brain. that actually leaks out and kind of mimics migraine. Uh, Those people typically have headaches that, like I said, mimic migraine, but don't respond to migraine treatment the same way migraine will. Um, And the majority of people that come into our clinic are migraine because the common headache, which people call tension-type headache, is As I've read in the book, about 78% of the country will have at least 10 or more of those attacks a year. They typically don't come to our clinic because it's self-limiting to pain only. And so that's the big difference between migraine and and what we call the regular headache is the associated features. It's more debilitating. If you can't go out in the light because the pain is so severe or you can't get out of your bedroom because you're throwing up all day, whereas a tension type headache, it's like I said, it's just pain. And it can be bad pain, but it's just not as debilitating. In the case of uh, Terrell Davis, from what I remember, um, I was a junior in high school when they won their first Super Bowl, and it sounded like he had an aura with his attack, which about 20% of people have aura. In, In the video with him talking with Mike Shanahan, he says, I can't see, which is classified as a negative aura. You lose your vision, and a positive aura would be you see things. So he fits into that category, according to what I remember from the video.
0: Jeffrey, let's stick with the uh, Terrell Davis story for one second. From what I understand, you grew up a Denver Broncos fan. You remember that Super Bowl very well, as you just intimated. But you also have a personal experience with migraines. Did, did seeing what Terrell Davis went through, did that motivate you to become involved in, uh, in you know, figuring out the migraine problem, going into the medical profession, being at CU Anschutz Headache Clinic?
4: You know, it definitely got me interested in neurology in general. Um, seeing somebody on the field saying they can't see, uh, we're going to use them as a decoy. I, I thought that was interesting. And I I remember when I was eight years old, I threw up from a headache. I was supposed to buy a Nintendo game and I couldn't make it into the store. Um, and so I don't get attacks as severe as some people in our clinic. I, I get attacked maybe once or twice a year, but I tend to have extreme nausea and I usually vomit with mine. And... I definitely didn't have any idea. I thought everybody had that. And then when I heard his story, it kind of opened my eyes and sparked an interest for sure.
0: Dr. Berlea, are, are athletes at particular risk, especially somebody like Terrell Davis who plays football, where they use their head um, as a battering ram at times?
3: The discussion can go both ways. Most of the time, the migraine starts in kids. Uh, interestingly in boys earlier than girls. Let's say in boys on average at age seven, in girls maybe age nine or 10 or so. But then over a lifetime, it becomes three times more frequent in women than in men. And when the patients come to our clinic, say my headache started after I had a concussion uh, playing sports in uh, when I was in grade school, I don't know what to say. Did Did your headache that you're having right now that behaves completely like migraine is uh, a post traumatic headache or it's because you have the genetical predisposition to get the migraine. Uh, most of the time, I say to the patients, I do think that you have this migraine biology and um, a trauma to the head probably made it more severe or made it manifest. In athletes starting uh, to play sports in uh, high school, it's an issue because if you have, if you start with the biology of migraine and you hit your head a few times, Then your life can be significantly affected. It can prevent you from advancing in the field of sports or even in other careers. Now, uh, when you are an established athlete and you need to perform every week, twice a week, uh, or whatever, you know, your, your profession tells you to do that it makes it difficult for you because you cannot predict next time you're going to have a migrant attack with uh, symptoms that we discussed in as severe as Jeff was mentioning. And you still have to perform uh, because you want to do everything for your team, and sometimes um, that's not possible. Uh, So at least like Thoreau Davis um, or other basketball players that that have uh, severe migraine are able to perform even uh, having this uh, storm happening, but they are to be admired for that.
0: So what is happening at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. What are the new treatments? What is the research showing? What are we going to hear about soon that's new and improved about treating migraines?
3: So the last, the last two years showed us that we have uh, treatments that work and they don't have significant side effects, which is, again, another thing to be discussed with athletes because we discussed about non-pharmacological treatment, but also at some point we have to offer medications to, to the patients. And uh, medication most of the time has side effects, can make you sleepy, can more, make you gain weight, can make you not able to concentrate, but you don't want that as an athlete to perform. So a medication that doesn't have those kind of side effects and is effective is totally desirable. So we have this uh, uh, medication that I mentioned to you that blocks a specific protein called CGRP, which is a pathway that activates the brain. Uh, to cause the migraine attacks that we discussed about. Once a month, injections, or there is an option to do it every three months as an injection or an infusion. So these are available, FDA-approved treatment uh, in the last two years, and we are using them. And we also have devices. So communication between brain cells are electric. So there are ways in which you can use devices to block those negative pathways inside the brain, and they are non-invasive. Uh, and we are going to hear more and more about these kinds of devices and treatments.
0: If you wouldn't mind, tell me what Terrell Davis did. He handed out some, some gifts during a race to help the migraine cause, yes?
3: We all have organized um, an event called uh, Running for Research uh, in September of last year, coordinated by uh, a national organization. Uh, we have a good turnaround, more than 100 participants, and one of the items that was um, used to raise money for for that event was uh, for uh, footballs donated and signed by Mr. Davis. And actually Jeff was sitting at the table being available uh, to any questions from participants regarding footballs.
4: It was definitely the, uh, the the attraction that drew most people. It was kind of interesting to see because there was actually a lot of Kansas City Chief fans there. <laughs> They, they were asking questions about it, not knowing that he suffered from a migraine and, you know, getting to tell the story from the second quarter of the, of the Super Bowl. You know, they, it was really interesting. And I think he did four footballs that he signed and um, we which probably where we raised most of our money
0: in the raffle. Well, I wish you both a lot of luck in your campaign. Uh, Dr. Mario Sperlea from the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Jeffrey Ranick, a nurse practitioner at CU Anschutz Headache Clinic. Thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank for us.
0: Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more unstoppable stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find
1: and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable podcasts.
0: And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.